This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The Presidency of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Welcome to the second of our three-episode series on the life and legacy of Dolly Madison. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, it was in our standard narrative format and covered Dolly's life up to when James Madison was inaugurated as president on March 4th, 1809. The second episode, I'm joined by a special guest to discuss Dolly's tenure as First Lady. And after this one, the series will wrap up with a final episode, which will switch back to the narrative format to examine Dolly's life after leaving the president's house and the legacy that she left. My special guest for this episode is Hillary Hicks, who is the senior research historian at James Madison's Montpelier. Hillary came to Montpelier in 2010 and joined the research department in 2011. She served on the research and writing team for the award-winning exhibition, The Mere Distinction of Color and is currently writing biographies of the enslaved for the naming project on Montpelier's Digital Doorway website. She's also a regular contributor to the website's Digging Deeper blog on a wide variety of Madisonian topics. Hillary serves as judge in the We the People student civics competition and was a board member of the Orange County Historical Society. Before coming to Montpelier, Hillary served as curator of interpretation at Tryon Palace Historic Sites and Gardens in New Bern, North Carolina, and executive director of the Rosewell Foundation in Gloucester, Virginia. She is an alum of the College of William & Mary, where she earned her B.A., the Cooperstown Graduate Program in History Museum Studies, where she earned her Master's, and the Seminar for Historical Administration. I cannot thank Hillary enough for her time and the insight that she provided on Dolly Madison and her time as First Lady, and I am so excited to be able to share our conversation with all of you. Thus, Without further ado, let's get to our discussion. All righty. Thank you so much, Hillary, for joining us here on Presidencies. I greatly appreciate your time and the insight that you're going to bring to help our listeners to understand a bit more about Dolly Madison. Well, thanks you for the invitation. Absolutely. And so to get us started, thinking of kind of a broad sense, can you tell us a bit about what a typical day in the life of Dolly Madison during her time as First Lady what that would have been like? Well, that's an interesting question because Dolly didn't really keep a daily diary. So we don't really know what would be a typical day for her. But part of her routine in the morning was paying calls. That was very much a, a social etiquette. She would be going to visit different ladies in Washington. If if they were not at home, she would leave her calling card for them. They, in turn, would be coming to pay calls on her, leaving their calling cards, she would need to return calls on them. So it was very, uh, the calls themselves really didn't last that long, maybe 15 minutes, but the ritual of making sure that you were reaching out to everybody was very important. And then, of course, a big part of her day also, like 
would still be the case for first ladies today, would be planning for dinners and receptions and official entertaining. Absolutely. And our listeners have probably already gotten the hint that that was a big part of the Madison's life in Washington. And so you know, she would have been, of course, heavily involved in that. And thinking about that for a minute, you know, and as we've seen in our narrative series, you know, Washington is really developing as the nation's capital, really developing a social life. And the Madisons, of course, were a big part of that. So Donnelly has been described as a political partner to James leading up to and during his presidency. Would you mind sharing more about Dolly's role in political life in Washington? Because, of course, even beyond the the social life, that political life was definitely developing. And how Dolly not only supported her husband's political agenda, but maybe even advanced her own agenda. Well, we often speak of Dolly and James Madison as being the original power couple in Washington. And for Dolly, it wasn't so much about supporting his agenda because she wasn't advocating for particular positions or issues. She didn't really have her own agenda per se, but her role was really about helping James connect with people and making personal alliances. And they had very complementary personalities because James Madison, if you met him in a large group of people, you probably think he was rather cold and withdrawn and not very friendly. Now, he could be very different if you got him in a small group around a dinner table, but in large groups, he, he came off uh, very quiet and rather shy. And Dolly, on the other hand, just had a very effervescent personality, very much a people pleaser. And so she was able to help James with those personal connections. For example, once Madison became Secretary of State, uh, the Madisons lived on a house on F Street. And the F Street house became a social center unto itself. I mean, Jefferson was entertaining, oftentimes just entertaining male friends at the White House, but the F Street house was its own social center. And Dolly really became known for her ability to disarm party rivalries and create an atmosphere where members of either party felt welcome. And there's an interesting observation that was made by Congressman Samuel Latham Mitchell. And this is in the run-up to the election of 1808. And so both Madison and George Clinton were potentially going to be the nominee of their party. And Congressman Mitchell noticed that uh, George Clinton was a widower. And he said that Clinton lives snug at his lodgings and keeps aloof from such captivating exhibitions. The Secretary of State, meaning Madison, has a wife to aid his pretensions. So just that ability to have this social activity going on in his household really gave him an advantage with other congressmen. And the other way in which Dolly was able to aid her husband while she was first lady came about during entertaining at the White House. And one of her friends referred to Dolly's snuff box as being her magic snuff box because she seemed to be able to use it to forge these alliances. So prior to the War of 1812, Madison needed to reach out in an indirect way to Congressman Henry Clay, who was a war hawk. And Dolly smoothed the way at one of her Wednesday evening drawing room receptions. She knew that both she and Clay used snuff, 
So she offered him her snuff box and that served as an overture. Absolutely. And listeners who have been listening to our narrative series know, know, we've kind of discussed this in the past and it's fascinating that you, you brought up that quote about George Clinton because, of course, he certainly wanted to ascend to the presidency in 1808, but really understanding how the role that Dolly and just the fact that she was there and able to help support James and to be able to use the social sphere to advance his political life is just, it's fascinating because it's something that, you know, we think of somewhat in the modern context, but especially in those times, politics were so social and could be so social. And so Dolly's role became magnified and really helped in that. And so, you know, we know that some first ladies from the early days on up to the modern era have not adjusted well to life in Washington, D.C. and the public role of life in the president's house. Dolly Madison doesn't seem to be one of those folks, but can you speak to Dolly's role in kind of the social life of the nation's capital? We've talked a little bit about that, but really focusing in on, on that social aspect and whether there were aspects of life in the, as the president's wife that Dolly just didn't really enjoy. Well, I think Dolly really thrived in the social world that was in Washington. And probably her greatest impact on the social life was setting up the Wednesday evening drawing room. And so this started May the 31st of 1809, ran through February 26th of 1817. Dolly was hosting a Wednesday evening event at the president's house nearly every week that the Madisons and Congress were in Washington. So there were recesses, but anytime Madisons and Congress were in Washington, these went on. And this provided a regular entertainment outlet for Washington society, But more importantly, it allowed the president to be accessible to the public and yet still reserve the bulk of his time for other duties. So the format, basically, the guests would come, they would greet James and Dolly, and then they were free to circulate through the three downstairs rooms in the White House and help themselves to cake and ice cream and punch and wines that were set out on the table. And there were also waiters passing through the rooms with refreshments on trays. Sometimes there were musicians playing in the background. Other evenings, guests were invited to sing or to play for the company. And people usually showed up in their best attires, commenting to each other or writing home about all the details of gowns and headdresses and jewelry and military or diplomatic uniforms. Sometimes the crowd was a little thin. Most of the time it was very very crowded, so much so that attendees sometimes referred to the events as squeezes on those crowded nights. And as for what Dolly didn't like about being First Lady, I think the main thing that she disliked was hearing criticism of her husband. Uh, That really seems to have bothered her. She received some criticism too, sometimes some really ridiculous criticisms, but she tended to respond in a more cavalier way, at least Officially, she responded in a cavalier way. I'm sure it hurt at some level. Absolutely. And and it, it really is fascinating because that seems to be kind of a, a trend in first ladies, at least the ones that we've discussed thus far, is 
there wasn't really that much criticism of Martha Washington, but definitely Abigail Adams came uh, under some criticism. But what really seems to get under their skin is the criticism of their husband and, you know, trying to figure out and, and having different approaches to how they dealt with that. And I think that that's, you know, I imagine that we'll see that going on in the series with other first ladies as well, but it's, it's definitely understandable. And I think it's more socially acceptable for them to talk back on their husband's behalf and not to try to defend themselves to be ladylike and rise above it. Absolutely. Well, and it really speaks to, um, because I know that's something that came up in in my research thus far, just all the descriptions that folks would write write home about about these these social gatherings at the president's house, Mrs. Madison's parties and and the social events, and just I love the descriptions that the rich descriptions that we get from that from those primary sources. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so, you know, thinking about this space that she utilized for these social events that brought the the political figures of the time together, did Dolly have a distinct vision for the president's house and her role going into the Madison presidency? Or did this vision kind of develop over time? That's another good question. And Dolly didn't really leave us much in the way of introspective writings. So we can only infer what her vision was and how it developed. And remember, by the time she is First Lady, she's already been entertaining in the Madison's house on F Street, as well as having served as Jefferson's hostess from time to time. And Dolly's approach seems to be trying to find a middle way between the excessive formality of the levees that the Washingtons had and the excessive informality of uh, Jefferson's pell-mell style of entertaining. So thinking again that Madison's only the fourth president, he's only the second to live in the White House for most of his presidency. So there's still some of a feeling that they're making it up as they go along. But one of the really important things that Dolly was involved with was the decorating of the White House. Now that may sound frivolous, which is interior decoration, But it was really important in setting up a backdrop for how this Republican government was going to play out. And so she is collaborating with Benjamin Latrobe and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, as well, who happened to be a friend of hers from her Philadelphia days. And so she seems to want to have the White House, the president's house, look like the home of an American president in a republic. It needs to be distinctive from the palace of a European monarch. And so Latrobe was able to help her accomplish that by using a lot of neoclassical design elements that hark back to the styles of ancient Greece and Rome, which were the models for a democracy and a republic. And Dolly Madison, once she had this stage set set up with this uh, beautiful backdrop, uh, she worked very hard to overcome partisan rivalries among her guests. 
And one of the congressmen, Jonathan Roberts, described this knack that Dolly had. He's writing in 1812. By her deportment in her own house, you cannot discover who is her husband's friends or foes. And then her friend Margaret Baird Smith later wrote in a biographical sketch, Mrs. Madison, who felt every attack on her husband more keenly than any made on herself, and such were not wanting, met these political assailants with a mildness which disarmed their hostility of its individual rancor, and sometimes even converted political enemies into personal friends, and still oftener succeeded in neutralizing the bitterness of opposition. And since the the social aspect here was to bring together people of different parties and to be able to to have a nice social evening with them and defuse the party rivalries. The Madisons often had members of Congress to dine with them. And there's a description from 1809 uh, from Eliza Quincy, who was the wife of a Federalist senator. And this is how she described her evening. She said, the company consisted of 25 or 30 people and not a single Federalist except Mr. Quincy. We were in the midst of the enemy's camp, but were treated with great distinction and passed a pleasant day. I was attended by the Secretary of State and placed next Mrs. Madison. So there's no pre-established seating chart for the dinner. So it's typical for each gentleman to escort a lady into the dining room as the Secretary escorted Eliza Quincy. And this made the seating kind of random, but everyone understood the general principle of the order of precedence, that the guest of honor or the guest ranking highest in social order would be shown to a seat nearest the head of the table where Dolly was sitting. So it's significant that the wife of the lone member of the opposing party is given the seat next to Dolly. Absolutely. And that's one of the most fascinating things I've read thus far in researching the Madisons, because in the presidencies preceding this, there was so much partisanism and you know getting away from having people from both parties at the same dinner table, at the same space. And the fact that they started to realize, okay, well, let's kind of draw this back. Let's see if we can get away from that, if we can forge something else. And I think, and it's going to be interesting as I go along and see, but I'm already seeing that I think this is going to make a a major impact and lead into what's to come in the Monroe presidency and the ultimate collapse and kind of folding in of many of the Federalists into the Jeffersonian camp, into the Republican Party of the time. So. It's fascinating to think of the role that this may have played in that. And I think the partisan rivalries were still there underneath, but they managed to pull a veneer of social nicety over it, which sometimes we can't even imagine to do that part today anymore. Exactly. We are definitely in that hyper-partisan place, unfortunately, (laughs) again. Well, and one thing that's important and that, we talk about on the podcast is, you know, the Madisons weren't doing this alone and they weren't doing this necessarily with paid labor, although they had some people that they did pay to work in the president's house, but they also brought some of the people that they enslaved from Montpelier to work at the president's house. And so just to kind of take a moment to address that aspect of life at the president's house and with the frame of looking at it through 
Dolly's life in particular. So Elizabeth Dowling Taylor, in her book on Paul Jennings, wrote that Dolly, quote, never voiced a known murmur of conscience at marrying a slave owner or presiding as mistress over a plantation of a hundred slaves. Would you mind walking us through Dolly's complex history with slavery over the course of her life, particularly given her Quaker background and her family's move to Philadelphia when she was a teenager? Sure. And it really is a complex history. And starting off thinking a little bit about the Quakers, as a group, you know, we think of them being anti-slavery, but that was a position that they evolved into. And that evolution takes place particularly coming up into the 1770s. And in Virginia, it was very difficult to emancipate someone who was enslaved. You actually had to get an act of legislature. So it was really reserved for situations where some enslaved person had done some meritorious act and was going to be freed for that. But then in 1782, that law changed. And so in Virginia, it became simpler to just emancipate the people you had enslaved. And so from 1782 onwards, that's when you see Virginia Quakers emancipating their slaves. And actually by 1784, the Virginia Yearly Meeting, which was the essentially the the governing body for Quakers in Virginia, the yearly meeting said you could no longer be a member of the Quaker meeting if you still own slaves. So Dolly grew up on a farm where her father owned slaves, and then he freed them in 1782 when it became legal to do so. So that's when Dolly is 14 years old. So up until that time, uh, she has had a a personal experience of uh, being in an enslaving family. And then her family moves to Philadelphia. Her father goes into business as a starch merchant. He eventually goes bankrupt. And so it makes you wonder if perhaps Dolly associated the family's economic downfall with the fact that they had freed the people they had enslaved and had moved to Philadelphia and changed her father's business. And I, I would say definitely I would agree with Beth Taylor that Dolly doesn't seem to have had any qualms about coming back to Virginia and back to living on a plantation that was operated by enslaved laborers. In a lot of ways, I would say Dolly doesn't seem to have been as deeply invested in Quakerism as her parents were. So just the fact that she married James Madison and he's not a Quaker, she had to know she was going to be read out of meeting for that. And in fact, most of her siblings were actually read out of meeting for different reasons over the years. There was another sister who married a non-Quaker, a brother who joined the military and Quakers were pacifists. Uh, One brother was read out for immorality, and uh, another sister and brother were read out for reasons that are not entirely clear to us. So I I think of Dolly in some ways as being kind of a cafeteria Quaker, where she's picking and choosing from the aspects of Quaker practice and philosophy, what she chooses to hold on to and what she doesn't. And there's an interesting quote from one of those Wednesday drawing room evenings, uh, James Milner writes in 1811 when he goes to the uh, drawing room. She had heard of my Quaker extraction and observed that neither of us were very faithful representatives of that respectable society. So she still has some aspects of her Quaker beliefs, but she does not have to seem to have any qualms about slavery. So what was she like as an enslaver? Uh, she is on the record saying that she didn't believe in whipping, 
she wrote to her son at a point in time when he's trying to engage a new overseer for Montpelier. She said, as to overseers, I'm glad you refused the first two, Burnley and Shackelford. No whipper of Negroes should ever have our people or any others to tyrannize over. So she's against whipping, which doesn't mean that she doesn't believe in punishing enslaved people for things that she sees as infractions. And there's a very interesting letter that she writes to her sister, and this is in 1818. And she's talking about her personal maid, Suki. And she has been upset with Suki. She says, Suki has made so many depredations on everything in every part of the house that I sent her to Black Meadow last week. Black Meadow was one of the outlying farms. So that would be a demotion from being a lady's maid to being a field hand. So I sent her to Black Meadow last week, but find it terribly inconvenient to do without her. And I suppose I shall take her again, as I feel too old to undertake to bring up another. So I must even let her steal from me to keep from labor myself, more than my strength will permit. I would buy a maid, but good ones are rare and as high as eight or nine hundred dollars. And then she goes on to advise her sister, and apparently her sister has recently enslaved a new lady's maid, and she goes on to tell her sister how important it is that she needs to attach this new maid to her sister and her sister's children. So that gives you, I think, a good sense of different aspects of Dolly when it comes to enslaved people. And then once she's a widow, things are different again. In Madison's will, he had stated a hope that his wife wouldn't sell any of the enslaved people except for misbehavior. And he says, it is my desire that none of them should be sold without his or her consent or in the case of their misbehavior. But Dolly is in financial straits at this point, and she does start selling people. And this is a very interesting letter from Edward Coles, who's a cousin of Dolly. And he's writing in 1836, so this is in the same year that Madison had died. He writes, Reports had gotten abroad that she, Mrs. Madison, wished to sell many of them, her slaves. And every day or two while I was at her house in August, a Negro trader would make his appearance and was permitted to examine the Negroes. It was like the hawk among the pigeons. The poor creatures would run to the house and protest against being sold and say their old master had said in his will they were not to be sold, but with their consent. She sold while I was with her, a woman and two children to her nephew, Ambrose Madison, who lives near her. The woman protested against being sold and the more so as her husband was not sold with her. So, you know, there are many aspects of Dolly's personality that we find appealing. This is the side of Dolly that is much less appealing. Absolutely. And you brought up Edward Coles, and I actually just finished a book that was about him and his journey to Illinois and freeing the people that he enslaved there, but then walking through, you know, what did abolition look like for him and his involvement with the colonization society. But I remember that was one part of it that he was so disappointed, A, that James Madison didn't include because they had talked and he thought that they had reached an agreement that Madison was going to make provisions in his will to emancipate the people that he enslaved at Montpelier. But then 
with this, it was just even worse that Dolly was starting to sell some of the people that they enslaved and just the the sheer disappointment that he had because he saw them as being these leaders who could point a way forward to get the nation away from slavery and to find a new way forward towards emancipation and the fact that it was due to these financial and personal matters that they went the other way. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, even at that time, that, that great disappointment, but especially, you know, looking back and with so much to your point, Hillary, there's so much about Dolly that is just fascinating and, and those good aspects, but we also have to account for the whole person. That's right. And, you know, focusing down on that for a minute and Madison's tenure as president, how would Dolly Madison have interacted with the enslaved individuals at the president's house? And what would have been their roles in maintaining the household? Well, it's interesting because the White House ends up being quite a bit different than uh, Montpelier because there are more paid servants. So it's more of a combination of uh, paid servants and enslaved laborers. So we we don't know all the people that came with the Madisons up to Washington. There's probably some back and forth over the time that the Madisons were in Washington. But I would say Dolly probably had more daily interactions with the free employees. So there was Jean Soussat, who was uh, also known as French John. He was uh, described either as the major domo or the maitre d or the chef. There was another French cook or steward, Henry Doyhar, for a while. Another French cook and butler was Michael Kromenacher. So Dolly probably had most of her interactions with them in terms of uh, planning the household routine and menus and so forth. But Dolly still had her own enslaved maid, Suki, that I had mentioned, uh, who probably came with her from Montpelier and actually continued with her until uh, 1848. And then Paul Jennings also came from Montpelier, Later on, he became James Madison's enslaved valet during Madison's retirement. But during the White House years, he was waiting at table. And so Dolly might have interacted with him during the serving of the different meals. But overall, I would say she probably interacted more with the higher ranking uh, steward, chef, butler. Absolutely. And bringing up Paul Jennings and just that we can get more of a primary account from him in the historical record is just fascinating because he he gives such fascinating perspectives from what he saw in while working at the White House and then later serving and being enslaved by the Madisons later on in the post-presidency. But he was also involved in one of the more famous stories from Dolly Madison's tenure. So, you know, she's already one of the more well-known first ladies of the early Republic. And that's in large part due to the story that she rescued the Lansdowne portrait of George Washington when the British invaded Washington, D.C. But as with any other story like this as so pervasive in the public consciousness, you know, you have to wonder how much of the tale is true and how much is kind of developed over time. 
So I know you've done some research on this. So Hillary, would you mind sharing what you found out about the story? Sure. It's really fascinating to try to pull apart the different threads, uh, the different stories that are told. Uh, There's multiple versions of the story. And one that we can say right off the top is false, is the idea that Dolly actually cut the portrait out of the frame herself with a carving knife or uh, whatever. And painting experts have examined the portrait, and there's no evidence that the painting was ever cut off its stretcher. But the stretcher was in a decorative outer frame, and the painting and its stretcher had to be taken out of the decorative frame in order to get it out of the building. So there's several different accounts of the portrait rescue. And one is a letter that was written by Dolly to her sister on the day that she evacuated the White House. And that letter seems to have been edited for publication either by Dolly or by Margaret Barrett Smith, who published it as part of her biography of Dolly. So only Dolly's copy survives, not the original letter. But the key part that she says about the painting, she writes, Our kind friend, Mr. Carroll, has come to hasten my departure and is in a very bad humor with me because I insist on waiting until the large picture of General Washington is secured and it requires to be unscrewed from the wall. This process was found too tedious for these perilous moments. I have ordered the frame to be broken and the canvas taken out. It is done, and the precious portrait placed in the hands of two gentlemen of New York for safekeeping. And now, dear sister, I must leave this house. So she sets up the the basics of the story there. And then in Paul Jennings' reminiscence, which you referred to a little bit ago, he also tells the story. And he says, it has often been stated in print that when Mrs. Madison escaped from the White House, she cut out from the frame the large portrait of Washington, now in one of the parlors there, and carried it off. This is totally false. She had no time for doing it. It would have required a ladder to get it down. All she carried off was the silver in her reticule, as the British were thought to be but a few squares off and were expected every moment. John Suset, a Frenchman, then doorkeeper, and still living, McGraw, the president's gardener, took it down and sent it off on a wagon with some large silver urns and other such valuables as could hastily be got hold of. And although Jennings didn't claim any credit for himself, Suset's descendants later described Jennings as holding the ladder as Suset worked to free the painting from its frame. And then years later in the 1840s, uh, the controversy reached the newspapers of who actually was responsible for saving the painting. So different people were writing editorials claiming credit. And Charles Carroll's son said that Carroll didn't just sit around waiting for Dolly to leave, that he actually took the painting down and saved it. And then Jacob Barker and Robert de Peister came forward and said they were the, quote, two gentlemen of New York who had carried the portrait off. And they urged Dolly to write a letter confirming what they had done. And she did that. And she also confirmed her own role and wrote, I acted thus because of my respect for General Washington. Not that I felt a desire to gain laurels, but should there be a merit in remaining an hour in danger of life or liberty to save the likeness of anything, the merit in this case belongs to me. So it kind of comes down to what does it mean to save the painting? So Dolly wanted credit because she gave the order. And that does mean something. She could have easily directed the staff to give up on the painting or even to save her personal belongings. 
And Paul Jennings wanted to credit the people who actually did the physical work. So he was crediting the doorkeeper and the gardener. And Barker and De Peister wanted the credit because they carried the painting to safety. So it's kind of funny. Uh, one of the other things that was saved that day were the draperies that Latrobe had designed, these big, expensive draperies. And nobody really cared who saved the draperies, but everybody wanted to be able to say they had been part of this moment that in retrospect seemed very iconic and patriotic, the saving of the Washington portrait. You have to wonder if the draperies had had pictures of George Washington all over them, (laughs) if they may have claimed a little more credit for that. Maybe so. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's, it's, it's so fascinating with stories like this and really trying to, to break down and, and especially when you've got so many voices coming in over, over the years, trying to claim a little bit of credit or, Oh, no, this is this is what I saw. So thank you for taking us through that and, and helping us to understand that that moment a bit more. And of course, we know, however it came about, the portrait was saved and was returned to the White House once they were able to return to D.C. and rebuild the White House. And so going to kind of another famous Dolly Madison story. So Dolly Madison is also, it's kind of well-known by the general public about her fondness for ice cream. Now, how factual is this connection? And particularly, and in, in as somebody who loves ice cream, I cringe at the thought, but is it true that she actually liked oyster ice cream? Excellent questions. So uh, Dolly did serve ice cream at the White House. She wasn't the first to do it. Jefferson had done it too. But it was one of the standard reception Uh, dishes that she served during the Wednesday drawing rooms. And there are actually mentions of some ice cream making equipment in uh, what are called the miscellaneous treasury accounts. Uh, They're records of receipts for purchases that were made for furnishing the White House. And uh, we know also that Dolly had a pair of ice cream vases that uh, still survive there at the White House. The Oyster Connection Uh, has to do with the Mary Randolph cookbook. And Mary Randolph had given the Madisons a copy of her cookbook, The Virginia Housewife. And it had recipes for various flavors of ice cream, including oyster. And I share your uh, revulsion at the thought of oyster ice cream. But basically, it was a frozen oyster stew with the oysters strained out. So it wasn't intended to be a sweet dessert kind of ice cream. I think of it more as sort of a cold, savory soup, like vichyssoise or cold cucumber soup, but just very, very cold. Uh, So the only connection between Dolly and oyster ice cream is that she owned a cookbook that had that recipe. So we really don't know if she made it, liked it, hated it. I suspect that the story about it being Dolly's favorite just came about from someone knowing that Dolly owned this cookbook and maybe speculating on what her reaction might have been to that recipe. See, the cold oyster soup, that sounds a bit more appealing than (laughs) thinking of ice cream with oyster in it as we think of. Yeah, you're not going to make a hot fudge sundae with oyster ice cream. No, no. (laughs) Well, and so kind of taking us back to the burning of Washington, D.C., the burning of the White House. So, of course, you know, when the Madisons were able to return to D.C., the White House, the president's house was destroyed. 
And so this event, you know, not only politically, but personally, the Madisons were impacted by this. Are there other ways? And and of course, this would this changed the trajectory of his presidency that impacted the rest of his term. But are there other ways that Dolly's role as First Lady either shifted or evolved as a result of the War of 1812? Well, before the war, one of Dolly's big projects was to furnish the president's house. And so in a sense, she found herself with another furnishings project. So initially, uh, after the White House burned, James and Dolly lived at the Octagon, which was rented quarters and presumably was already furnished. And then they rented a townhouse in a cluster that was called the Seven Buildings. And so it was a redecoration project on a more modest scale. And then she did resume the Wednesday evening drawing room events in the fall of 1814, so really just a few months after the White House burned. And even though some people looked on the drawing rooms as kind of frivolous, it probably did help reestablish a sense of normalcy in the capital city, especially since there was some question as to whether the capital would be moved back to Philadelphia since the White House and the capital had to be rebuilt anyway. And then another thing that happens in this post-war of 1812 period is that Dolly becomes interested in the plight of orphans in Washington City. And in 1815, a friend of hers, Marcia Van Ness, established the Washington Orphan Asylum, and she convinced Dolly to serve as the first directress which is basically the chair of the board. You know, sometimes when you say that Dolly was a directress of an orphan, it sounds like she was Miss Hannigan, but she wasn't. She didn't have any hands-on role in the operation of the orphanage. So this was really something fairly new and significant, the idea of a group of women banding together and forming an organization to solve a problem that they saw in society. And Dolly contributed money to the cause, And she also wrote out a petition to Congress to incorporate the organization. We don't know if she composed it, but Dolly had such distinctive handwriting. She has this sort of flat-bottomed handwriting. It looks like maybe she is using a piece of lined paper under her paper. So the fact that her handwriting was so distinct and they made sure that it was her handwriting that appeared to Congress, the, the other ladies were probably hoping that would help along the cause. As it turned out, uh, Congress didn't incorporate the orphan asylum at that point. It didn't happen until much later in its history. But that's just an interesting aspect during Dolly's tenure as First Lady because that is a little bit closer to the idea of having a cause, which has become more important for modern First Ladies. Absolutely. And I was just thinking of that, that that really is such a key aspect of the 20th and 21st century idea of the first lady, this having a, a distinctive cause and the fact that you here you have Dolly Madison this early on in the early Republic being the first in that respect is just, it's really fascinating. And, you know, also her role in reestablishing the social culture and reestablishing the capital in Washington, D.C. You know, that that was a crucial point. And we'll discuss that more in our narrative series, you know, once we get to that. But yes, this was one of those times where people had to question, do we really want the capital 
in D.C. or do we want to open up the door and find another city? And the role of the Madisons and in particular Dolly and her close friends and associates in making sure that it stayed in D.C. That's so important and really speaks to her impact on the time. And so the War of 1812 ended and that was getting towards the end of James's second term. And you know, at this point, and it would be a while before there was a constitutional prohibition to the president serving a, a third term, but of course, James Madison opted not to run for re-election in 1816. What was Dolly's reaction to this decision to retire? And how did she help in the transition to the incoming Monroe presidency? Well, I think for one thing, even though there was no prohibition on third terms, that precedent that Washington had set for only serving two terms was really strong. So I don't know how seriously they really thought about having a third term. And Dolly didn't write anything specifically about James's decision to retire. So again, we can only speculate that she probably had some mixed feelings. She was very protective of her husband. He had had very serious illness during the War of 1812, actually in 1813. He was very ill, thought that he might die. She, After he became well enough to travel, she was very protective that he needed to stay at Montpelier long enough to really get well. So I think there was probably an aspect where, as far as her protectiveness of her husband, she was probably just as glad to see him retire. But she really enjoyed living in the capital city and being so close to her friends. One of her friends since girlhood was Eliza Lee. And by this, although they had known each other in Philadelphia, by this time, Eliza lived near Washington, D.C. And there's an interesting exchange of letters where the Madisons had had their portraits painted just before leaving Washington. And Dolly gave a copy of the portraits to Eliza. And Eliza wrote back and said she just thought there was something missing in Dolly's expression. And Dolly wrote back, in truth, it was a most unpropitious season for me to sit the very day before I left you, when I could only think of the circumstances, the early intimacy and affection that bound us together, when no fears of eternal separation, as at that moment, affected me, covered my cheek with tears, and spread over my countenance the uncomely glow. So she's basically saying, while she was having her portrait painting, she She was so sad at the thought of being separated from her friend, and at their age, at this point, maybe she never would see her friend again. That turned out not to be the case. But that's the sort of thing that Dolly would miss about being in the Capitol. And as far as transitioning to Elizabeth Monroe, I should mention that Elizabeth Monroe was a friend of Dolly's. The first lady role was not so formalized as it is today, so there was no no office or staff. So there wasn't really a transition period in that way. And Elizabeth Monroe was used to being the wife of a diplomat and the wife of a cabinet secretary. So she knew what she was doing. She would do things her own way. I don't think Dolly was too concerned about that. Definitely. And that's, you know, I've come across this in previous presidencies towards the end. You get these letters from folks, well, we don't know if we're ever going to see each other again. And that's when you realize that the Capitol was such a nexus for people who, even beyond the political landscape, but folks who had 
grown up together, may have gone to school together or, or been neighbors for so long in so many aspects of their lives. And this retirement, we think of retirement now as, well, you go and travel and you get more time with folks, but it was really, you're going home and you may not see most of these folks again. So that's, it's fascinating that, that we see that with Dolly Madison as well. And as it turned out with Eliza, when Dolly Madison was a widow, she moved back to Washington, D.C. They picked up their friendship. Eliza was actually at Dolly's deathbed. So they were, they were friends to the end. Absolutely. Well, in thinking of kind of as we're getting close to the end of our conversation and thinking of, of Dolly's tenure overall as First Lady, what would you say was Dolly's greatest contribution to this role of First Lady as we understand it today? I think she brought her own personality to the role, and she made it her business to support her husband's presidency through what she did best, which was creating social events that brought people together and kind of balanced the quieter aspect of his personality. And with Dolly, you can't really point to any one specific First Lady tradition that she started and has been carried down ever since. But she definitely set a standard, particularly for social events at the White House. And for years afterwards, Washington insiders compared other White House receptions to the ones that Dolly had hosted. And they rarely came up to the standard that Dolly set, according to her friends. Well, and, and you mentioned that personality that she brought to the role and that she brought to social life in D.C. at the time. What one aspect of Dolly's life or personality do you think is most distinctive or most important for folks to understand? What fascinates me about Dolly is that there was more to her than her public persona. She wasn't just a party girl. Uh, she did her entertaining in a purposeful and political way. She embraced being seen as a gracious hostess, very happy and lighthearted, but when you read her letters to her family and close friends, you see that she had a lot more depth. One of the things that struck me when I first started reading her letters was how much she worried. She worried about her husband, her son, her brother, her sisters. And when you look at the losses she experienced early in her life, particularly losing her first husband and their baby, maybe it just left her with an awareness that life can change very quickly. And a lot of things, a lot of bad things sometimes can happen in the time it took to write a letter and receive a reply. And finally, there's also a real contrast between the sides of Dolly that her family and friends knew and the sides of Dolly that the enslaved community knew. And as much as she could be a delightful friend, she was also an enslaver who sold people for her own economic ends. So she's not one or the other. She's both. And I think that's both challenging and fascinating for us to wrestle with. Absolutely. And and that's something that I have tried to do with this podcast to really get to an, a greater understanding. You know, we have so many figures that are held up or the marble statues, but once you understand the not so admirable aspects of their life, their personality, as well as those things that we revere them for, A, they become richer because we all have our, our faults. We all have things that aren't necessarily great about us, but they're also a part of us and they make us human. I think 
reintroducing those human elements, it helps us to be able to relate to them better and to be able to really take from history an understanding and a connection that hopefully will help us as we move forward to be more informed about where we've been and where we can go. And so finally, Hillary, we've been talking about Dolly Madison so much, but I wanted to turn the light on you for just a minute and ask if you would mind sharing a bit about your role at James Madison's Montpelier and some of your research interests. Sure. Well, I'm the senior research historian, and the way I explain my job is that I look stuff up for people who ask me questions. <laughs> and so it's you know, my job is really to be a resource for staff members, for authors or researchers outside of Montpelier, and even the general public. So I field questions about a wide variety of topics, which is one of the things I enjoy about my job. I never really know what I'm going to be looking up next. Sometimes I'm asked to verify Madison quotes because there are a lot of Madison quotes floating around the internet that, oddly enough, are not correct. Imagine so, that. <laughs> imagine that. On the internet. One of my big projects right now is the naming project, and that is on our Montpelier Digital Doorway website. And we've listed the 300 names that we know of people who were enslaved at Montpelier from the time that James Madison's grandfather owned the property up until the time that Dolly sold the property. And so I'm in the process of writing biographies for each of them. In some cases, they're very short biographies because some people's names only show up in one or two documents. But then there are other people whose stories are better documented. For example, I'm working now on the biography for Dolly's maid, Suki. And that's been quite fascinating because we actually do know her last name. Her full name was Susanna Stewart. And so it makes it easier to trace her after the time that she was with Dolly. And then other research interests that I've had uh, for a number of years, I've been researching plantation operations at Montpelier. So agriculture, livestock, textile production, foodways the extent to which the Madisons were self-sufficient on the property or market-dependent. I write a lot of blog posts on different topics. So if it's about Montpelier, I will, I either have researched it or I might be researching it next week. Well, and, and I've actually been following the naming project uh, whenever the new biographies come out. And it's just, it's, it's such important work to bring back into the historical narrative these individuals that, you know, what little we may be able to, because it's all dependent on what records were kept and what records still exist. And I know that is, that can be challenging, but it's also such important work. And with that and everything else that you do, thank you so much. We need that in the world. We need these individuals' stories to be brought back again and to make sure that we understand that they were part of the narrative and part of the history as well. So that is such powerful work. So thank you for that. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. And I look forward to hopefully getting back to Montpelier again. It's been quite a number of years since I visited, but Now that we're getting into a better place with COVID and things are starting to open up more, that was one of the things on my bucket list of the post-COVID world was to be able to return to the Charlottesville area and 
revisit. Montpelier was definitely one on my list. So definitely looking forward to that. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for all that all of you at James Madison's Montpelier do and helping us to understand that plantation and all the people who lived on it, worked on it, and what that history means for us. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. And thank you for having me. Special thanks again to Hillary Hicks, the Senior Research Historian at James Madison's Montpelier, for sharing her time and knowledge with us in order to help us gain a greater understanding of this key figure in the presidential history of the early republic. To learn more about the work of Hillary and her colleagues at James Madison's Montpelier, just go to montpelier.org. I also have a link on the page for this episode on my website, which is Presidency's Podcast. That's allonword.com. Thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for editing your podcast or audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpalalloneword.com. If you'd like to reach out to me with any questions or comments, please feel free to email at presidencyspodcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow and communicate with me on social media. I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. You guessed it, all one word. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time when we conclude this mini-series on Dolly Madison. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.